Hey, how exciting is it to partner with organizations that are doing uh, the mission of God throughout the world? Um, Tier Fund, do it excellently. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 14. Sometimes when we see videos like the story of Ruth and hear about some of those um, situations of systemic poverty, it can be overwhelming. And for the last few moments of our evening, I want not to play the drums, but to think about less is more. And just to set a little bit of context, and what we're reading here in Matthew's Gospel is a biography. It's a recording of something that actually happened. Matthew is our author, and he has written in such a way that his readers would actually find themselves in the story of Jesus and be made to ask again and again, what do I think about this man and his claims to be king? Now, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus doing a lot of really cool things. He's teaching, he's healing, casting out demons, he's working with the poor and the marginalized and really beautiful, vibrant expressions of Jesus' ministry. But where we are tonight is actually a bit of a left-hand turn. What we're reading now is what scholars call the collection of the rejection narratives. Jesus was rejected by his hometown, which came about because of rationalism. Uh, The people around him were like, this cannot be the Messiah. This is Mary and Joseph's son. He's a stonemason. He doesn't look like I think he's supposed to look. And tonight we continue into that narrative as we find Jesus' own disciples disrupting things, compelled by perhaps the most understandable and relatable of defects, which is realism. With that, look with me at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Next slide, Alex. I had the privilege a few weeks ago of visiting uh, the pinpoint location of this story. This is Capernaum. This is uh, the remains of the temple that Jesus would have gone into. And the setting that we're reading here, Jesus removes himself from this place and a few steps away is a lake and got onto a boat and went on um, a few miles journey across the Sea of Galilee, which is just a large lake. And he finds himself in a place like this. The the Bible talks about the the quiet place, just a place that Jesus went to um, to be alone with God. And our story tonight opens with Jesus um, hearing about John's death. That's why he's going to the solitary place. A few verses prior to this, um, when we see the disciples had come for John the Baptist's body, and they had buried him, and after that they go and tell Jesus what had happened. And as Jesus hears about John's death, we read that he gets into the boat to go. And with good reason. He goes to a place where he could be alone, something we've seen Jesus do over and over again. This word solitary can be translated as wilderness or deserted place or lonely place. And here we see another part of Jesus' humanity revealed. 
Remember, Jesus is the greatest example of true spirit-filled humanity. So he's not just being moody and sulking. He actually knows in his humanity that being alone right now is a good thing. And there's no doubt that he was grieving. He had just lost John. That was his friend. And not only did he lose him, but he lost him in a manner that must have revealed to Jesus, if only in a small way, what might have laid ahead for him as well. Needless to say, there was a lot to process and consider. And this time alone was Jesus' moment to breathe, to think, to pray. And you know what it's like when you get hit with deep grief. It's just like, how do you even find your footing? You just need a moment. And this is where Jesus was. Unfortunately, though we read, this was short-lived. The second part of verse 13, we read that the crowd were following him. So he had gone on the boat across the lake, and I would love to see the pace of the crowd, but they had walked around on foot and were waiting for him. Picture this. Jesus gets into the boat to go alone, and the crowd, like, it's not a small crowd, it's like a billion people, are on foot, they're meeting him there, and they're not just coming to hang out, they're coming with needs. We read that as soon as Jesus lands on the shore, he barely makes it off, and he sees them, and he doesn't get his time alone, and his reaction, in my opinion, is nothing short of remarkable. He isn't angry or frustrated. Instead, we read that he is full, full of compassion. N.T. Wright describes the moment this way. He says, Before the outward and visible works of power and healing the sick comes the invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need. Jesus' own vulnerability seems to be a gateway for his compassion. So Jesus, moved with compassion, does what he's done time and time again, and he heals their sick. And in the middle of his own time of need, we find him spending time amongst those in need. This is a radical rabbi for sure. Now eventually the day moves on and we see the disciples trying to wrap things up. Follow me with uh, verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied and said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, there seems to be a hint of impatience, maybe even fatigue in the disciples' tone. They are essentially telling Jesus what to do. In short, they're basically saying, look, we've been at this for a while. There's too many people here and they won't go home if you don't tell them to. Now, historically, we know that it isn't likely that so large a number of people would have had the ability to buy enough food in the villages surrounding to actually meet their needs. People would have had to bring their own provisions. So the disciples aren't all wrong here. They're taking... Uh, their circumstances at face value, and they're saying this isn't going to work. Jesus responds without losing his sense of reality, and he says, no, they don't have to go. You give them some food. Now the disciples, undoubtedly a little baffled, respond and say in verse 17, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. One scholar I read noted a hint of sarcasm in their answer, and while I don't know if that's true or not, they're essentially showing Jesus what they've got and say this is it. 
This is all we have. We're going to read, we're going to feed all of these people with this little meal. They looked at the supply and said, this isn't sufficient. Jesus placed a demand upon them, which they were clearly incapable of fulfilling. And despite what they had seen Jesus do time and time again, they are fixated on their own perspective of limitations. Maybe it was the simplicity of the miracle. Maybe if it was a person with leprosy or a person totally dead, they would have considered that he would do something. But because it was dinner, it was almost too small. Despite their unbelief and in kindness, Jesus responds to them in verse 18 and says, Bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Now notice the disciples weren't called here to creatively dream up some kind of strategy of charitable action. They were simply asked to give what they had. To surrender their little provision and let him do the rest. It might seem like they do this with little faith, but the reality is they still do it. Scholar R.T. France explains what their giving really entails when he says, To surrender even this meager provision to Jesus was either an act of reckless obedience or evidence of a more confident faith in Jesus' problem-solving ability than we have seen the disciples display elsewhere. Perhaps even clueless to the outcome, the disciples hand over their food. Now, next we see Jesus directs them to sit down and he essentially uh, says for them to prepare to eat. It's interesting that in the Greek, direct is is simply um, seen as a command, and the word to sit is actually to lounge or to lay. This is a position first century Jews would have taken when they were at a banquet or a feast. And he's saying, prepare to eat because you're about to feast. So the picture we see here is both prophetic and familiar, and both authority and beautiful hospitality are on full display. And Jesus sets the stage for the miracle. Jesus then takes the bread and the fish and he gives thanks and he blesses it and he breaks it. This language we'll hear later in this book, but around a different meal. And he does this, and when he does this, he gives the food to the disciples and they give it to the people. And in this act, we see Jesus subtly and yet sweetly inviting them not only to um, participate, but to share in the miracle itself. And through, and through that, something incredible happens in verse 20. It says, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So just like that, we've got a miracle. Look what it says, they were satisfied. It wasn't just sufficient. This is going to be a filling to the brim experience. Now, it's easy for me to read this story and to think back to a time when I might have heard it in a Sunday school talk or maybe even displayed through some cartoon vegetables. Some of you know what I'm talking about if you grew up in church. So when it comes to these encounters, we think, I've heard this before. It's easy for us to minimize what's happening. Now, we think that Matthew's audience um, was mostly a Jewish readership meaning that as they read this encounter, their minds would be cast back to stories of the Old Testament. Stories that like of Elisha, the prophet who was given 20 loaves of bread and fed 100 men. 
with it and guess what, had some left over. Or Moses, whose uh, leadership, hundreds of thousands of Israelites received miraculous provision from heaven regularly over years, all of which takes place in the wilderness. Leaving his readers to consider a provocative conclusion. This man, Jesus, here in the wilderness, feeding the masses, was to become, um, was more than just a Jewish rabbi, but in fact, he was the new Moses. And this time, he wasn't just a spokesperson for God, he performed the miracle himself. He was pointing to the moment where we arrive at the Lord's Supper, and we see the way that Jesus truly provides for the world in the breaking of his own body, in the way that he truly gives himself. As one scholar put it, the feeding of the 5,000 was a short-term solution. The upside-down alternative was for Jesus to offer himself as the permanent bread of life. His miracle wasn't separated from the work he was here to do. Now notice there's no mention of the crowd's response to the miracle. About 15,000 people probably. um, There was no mention of a thank you or a that fish was cooked perfectly. Think about the number of people this is. If you've ever been a big, hungry crowd, maybe a Crescent summer camp, and you're out for the long walk during the midweek, and uh, you're in row 4,700, and you don't care where the food's coming from, you're just like, yeah, pass it back, and the drinks, and where's the chocolate, keep it coming, more bread, mass bread. See, maybe the miracle wasn't for the people, at least not in the way that it was for the disciples. For those who walked closest to him, it was an invitation for them not only to see but to experience Jesus as both man and God. To find within him both the ordinary and the extraordinary. The disciples were with Jesus. They would have known better than anyone else, more than the crowds, about the sorrow and the need for solitude for Jesus. His humanity was completely on display for them, and yet they see their rabbi full of love and compassion. And the need of healing himself begins to heal others. Henry Nouwen once said that love often makes itself visible in pain. And it's here in the pain that we see his love most perfectly on display. What he displayed in this moment was an invitation to these apprentices of his to do the same. He wasn't asking them to do anything he wasn't already himself doing. Completely empty and yet moves in faith trusting that the provision would be there. His humanity fully alive with grief, loss, and pain. And he shows them that this was not a limitation, but it would actually become the vehicle through which the miracle would come. The disciples' focus was what they did did not have. So often that's true for us. Look, they were just being realistic. Practical, they're looking at what they have in their hands and saying, look, this isn't going to be enough. Often that is the same for us. Maybe we're a little reluctant to hand over um, all that we have because we know it won't work. And still Jesus says to them, you give them some food. And in one sentence, he was disrupting their sight. Their ability to see their poverty, not as a limitation, but as a resource. In that moment, Jesus invites them to imagine a different outcome. To give up their assumption that they are their own resource. To believe that their gesture of generosity, both 
born from poverty would become something incredible. There was an invitation extended to them. Dale Bruner says this, The church learns from this story, Bring them here to me means give Jesus everything we have in obedience, however insignificant that everything may seem to be. Jesus often asks us for the unreasonable, for the small thing that doesn't make sense when we think it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if I serve in church or if I speak to that new person or if I keep showing up to play football on a Friday night with the kids. He's asking for the small, the unreasonable thing, the thing that we deem maybe unnecessary in the grand scheme of the kingdom. And I love telling God that I can't do it. Uh, I don't have the time, um, the ability. All I have is this. What are you going to do with this? We go through every season and every reason why it won't be sufficient. But the reality for those of us that are apprenticing under Jesus of Nazareth is that he will never stop asking for the small thing, the thing we disqualify. See, in the kingdom of God, a small thing can actually become a huge thing. Where out of nothing, something is formed. Where in barren wombs, babies are given a home. Where dead things actually come back to life. This is the invitation of the disciple of Jesus. He says to them and to us, you give them something. Which will require us to look down at our hands in the smallness of what we have and look to him in our, in our next breath, hear him say, bring it to me. We're not responsible for the miracle. We're responsible for the surrender. God delights in shattering our pint-sized expectations of who he is and what he's going to accomplish in our lives. He is a God who is able to go beyond expectations. He is lavish and he is outrageous. It is the call of us, the disciple, to believe him to be better than we imagine him to be. If only we would give him what we have. If we only trust him in the thing he's asking from us today, we won't know what lies behind the obedience. Obedience, not because we have to, but because we love him. We're coming after him because he came after us. Because he's worthy of everything we have. The sacrifice of our lives. And he will be our provision. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are more than enough and more than our minds can comprehend. Help us to not view our situation and our story as insignificant, but part of the greater kingdom of God. God, thank you that you invite us to play a role, even though you don't need us to, because that's the plan. God, thank you for what was accomplished at the cross and what that means, but we're in this story. God, use us. Help us to be obedient. In Jesus' name.